Hello and welcome to Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. We are two diehard rugby fans having a weekly chat about all things Aussie rugby. Real, family friendly and positive. Get involved. Get involved. Well, Mitch, it is a pleasure to be here with you. Tonight's episode or today's episode is Brumbies Rule Britannia. It's going to be a lot of fun looking into the Brumbies versus the British and Irish Lions. But before we get there, how's your week been? It's been good. It's been a good week this week. Every... Every week so far is starting to go back to normal. More rules yep. restricted. We think we've been talking about this the last few weeks. So, <laughs> It's the main thing, isn't it? Now, I need to ask, and I sh- I'm sure our listeners care, did you go for brunch again this week? I didn't, no. Okay, well, that then makes my next question of, did you combine sweet and savoury again with your food options? Irrelevant, so I won't ask that question. We didn't, but no. I want to see what your next concoction is that you have whilst out for brunch. <laughs> Call yeah, definitely. I'll have to. Uh, I'll have to keep a keep a tab of what I do have and what we order. <laughs> um, mate, it is the return of some form of sport that has just come into play. So we had rugby league start up on Thursday night. Did you catch any of the games over the weekend? Yeah, I did. I caught a few games over the weekend. Caught three it? of them. Interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. I'm not really a more. big. I'm not a massive fan of rugby league in general. Um, yep. But I had seen a few games prior with the beginning of the year before it sort of paused. And then now that we've started up again and they've had a few rule changes come in. That's really had a big impact on the game, which has been really yeah, interesting. What was it? The reduction down to one referee instead of multiple. And then which just makes was sense. It infringements at the tackle result in six again calls. Yeah. So the they're one? trying to get rid of the term. They call it wrestling when... Yep. In rugby league, a player gets tackled and then the defending players sort of lie around in the ruck area and just slow the yep. ball down and slow the pull. They, the term yep. they use is wrestling. So they've, yep. now the ref can call six again if they think that the players are deliberately slowing the ball down, which then gets the players... They, it just, it's resulted in the game speeding up dramatically. So players mm. will now tackle, go to ground, the ref will call hold or held, then they both get up and play the ball and it just moves on so quickly. Was that a good thing? From a fan point of view, yeah, it's def- it has okay. sped the game up a lot. There's a lot more ball in action time. I pity the players time. in this first round because they would have been pretty. They would have had like no game fitness or match fitness after being in the COVID lockdown, and well, then was, having yeah, to that adjust was, these new laws. Yeah, that was a big thing that a lot of the players were getting sort of past it by the 30 minute mark, and by the end of the half, they were really blowing. Wow. Well, maybe that um, I caught the final 20 minutes of the Thursday night game, which I think was Eels versus Broncos. Yeah, And it just, it was so boring, so boring, so boring. And I was wondering now, as I'm thinking about it, as we're talking, oh, that's probably why, because the players must have just been exhausted and out on their feet because they'd had this new law and new rule plus the lack of match fitness together. I just found that they were, there was just a little skill on offer um, by the time I was watching the game. Maybe the 60 minutes before that was fantastic rugby. I don't know. But... <laughs> yeah, potentially. But yeah, I, I do find that rugby league is so one out, so singular that it does get yeah. quite repetitive and quite boring quite quickly mm. to us sort of mm. rugby men. He just want a bit of contest. <laughs> a real game. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, I mean, it's good that they're trying to speed things up. And don't get me wrong, I'll still watch the State of Origin every single year. And yeah, that's right. watch a few of the kangaroos tests, but realistically, 
I'm glad, which, and it will come into our main news that Australian Rugby Union has a competition starting up. But before we get there, why don't you talk about our social media platforms? Yeah, so we are on Facebook and Instagram. So if you'd like to join us on Instagram, we are at hashtag pick underscore drive underscore rugby. And on Facebook, we're on a page called Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. Awesome. Now, tonight's episode, we've got some pretty interesting news that we're going to be tracking through for a little bit prior to us going into depth with the Brumbies and British and Irish Lions game. Now, I really want to encourage everybody listening to watch this game first, okay? Uh, You can pause the podcast here, go and watch it. It's on the Rugby Australia YouTube account, so you can just go and watch it there legitimately. And it is a really, really entertaining game. Uh, the first time in 42 years an Australian provincial side defeated the British and Irish Lions. So it was a historic moment and it's basically the reason why we're reviewing the game tonight. Yeah. Uh, anything you want to chuck in there, Mitch, or should we jump on into it? No, I think that's everything. It was a, I'm looking forward to having a chat about it. Awesome. Okay, let's go into our news. Awesome. Now we move to our spicy news for the week. Lots to chat about this week. Lots of news, domestic and international. So first up, something we've been waiting for, an announcement for a few weeks now, is Australia will have a domestic competition, a sort of a domestic COVID competition, if you want to call it that. At the moment, we're looking at a July 3 start. It's going to be a 12-week tournament with, at the moment, five teams, potentially six. So we've got all of the Super Rugby sides confirmed. We've got the force coming back. We are now currently waiting on the government to approve the Sunwolves' involvement. Thoughts on this one, Andrew? Mate, I'm just super excited we're going to get Australian rugby happening again. Um, So pretty soon we're going to be able to watch New Zealand, the New Zealand competition, depending upon broadcast arrangements. Yeah, two weeks. Two weeks for that one. Yeah, yeah. Crazy exciting. And then from July 3rd. So it's basically a month until we get rugby back up in Australia. So that's really, really exciting. Keen to see the teams play again and to actually have a podcast that's focused upon reviewing games that are live and actually happening in a week. So yeah, not just talking our about lives. our thoughts on things <laughs> and old games God. that no one really cares about anymore. <laughs> oh, mate. I mean, it's fun to take these trips down nostalgia lane, but oh, realistically, yeah. we started this because we wanted to chat about real games that are live and happening and have current relevance. Um, and it's just another signifier that things are beginning to return to a semblance of normality. So great news, very welcome, very excited. I'm so excited as well that they got the force back. There were some talks yeah, going around that the force were involved and the force said they weren't involved. So well done. Let's see the force come back and kick the Waratahs' butts. <laughs> yeah, maybe not want them to do the last one, but I'm afraid that they will. So yeah, we'll see. <laughs> exactly. So another another point that came out this week uh, is around Dave Rennie. So one point is that Dave Rennie is coming back earlier than initially sort of planned due to the whole COVID situation and then no rugby being on over in Europe. So we've got him back early next month, which is going to be awesome. So he'll be in the country for this new domestic competition. Good stuff there. The next part is that he has come out and said some... Well, he's had an interview with a few people by a video conference call. And there's been some points that he's said that have been quite interesting in that he really thinks that Australian rugby need to sort of deal with their own issues behind closed doors. 100%. Yep. So he said he has um, uh, a lot of discussions need to happen behind closed doors um, and 
things are being pretty messy and and that's just putting it mildly. That's what he said. So, <laughs> I mean, I agree with him exactly what he's yeah. saying here. Yeah. And I think um, one of the big things that we said last on last week's pod about the Stephen Moore interview was we, we raised the question of why did it need to be an open letter? And why was it something that was brought out into the Australian public rather than being taken to the board? And if it had been taken to the board and then ignored or rejected or whatever, then you should have said so to have better legitimacy. Um, What Rennie is basically pointing out is I think a large, an ongoing issue within Australian rugby in that there's so many different little partisan groups that are vying for their own piece of the pie. And so negative articles get thrown left, right and center, but also uh, just pointing to the issues around the broadcast deals and the souring of the relationship with Fox that just led to this whole negative campaign of media. And so, yeah, it's good to have the Australian coach basically saying he completely thinks or completely agrees that it should be behind closed doors and done in a constructive way for the bettering of rugby which has not been the direction. I mean, we'll see if anybody actually listens to him, but it's nice it's being said. Yeah, it would be interesting to see if change happens now. The fact mm. that he's put it out there and he said these things, and it makes complete sense. If, yeah. if we see things changing in Rugby Australia, if things do start being handled a bit more privately and internally. Or if they do, does that mean it was because of Dave Rennie or does it mean it was because of the new acting uh, interim CEO? We will never know. the new director. So it's kind of like, here, I have a rock that scares away bears. Can you see any bears? Therefore, the rock works. <laughs> we'll, have to figure, we'll have to figure out which one. Uh, actually, we won't be able to figure out which one it is. But regardless, if there are no more negative articles that are bashing Rugby Australia or um, saying that rugby is going to die, then everybody's happy. I guess, yeah, if it, if it works, we won't hear anything. If it doesn't work, we'll definitely be hearing things. <laughs> True. That's a very good point. All right. So the next bit of news is around the Rugby Australia accounts finally being audited. You're a bit more across this one, Ando. Yeah, cool. So basically before um, Rowling Castle res- uh, stepped down, resigned, there was the issue that Austra- Rugby Australia had not had their accounts for the 2019 year um, audited as they normally would. And at the time that was legitimately passed off because of the COVID lockdown. Um, They were meant to be getting it done in the next couple of weeks and then everything got locked down so they couldn't. Now uh, the auditors KPMG have signed off on the accounts. We have not yet seen as of Sunday night any of the details of that. It is likely, according to the article in Rugby Australia, that they're going to be getting released in the next kind of 48 to 72 hours. So it may well be more information is out by, say, Tuesday, Wednesday this week. One of the really interesting things from this, though, is that uh, the interim CEO, Rob Clark, very clearly says within this article that a business restructure is going to be announced in the coming days. So we are announcing the first phase of an organisational restructure of Rugby Australia, which we are in the final stages of completing. So one of the criticisms that people have labelled at RA is that it is kind of like a bloated bureaucracy for overseeing the game and that too much money that could be used for different aspects of the game is poured into kind of corporate or management or bureaucratic levels of Rugby Australia. So perhaps this is a um, way of trying to address that. Who knows what it will look like, but I'm excited to see some level of change happening within RA. 
Yeah, sounds good. I'm, I'm keen for that. Yep. Yep. And I get, we don't have much detail, so let's just wait and see. And we might be able to chat about it more next week. Cool. Awesome. So the next article was, um, it's kind of still domestic. It involves Super Rugby, although it's South African teams. So there was news, and it's not that surprising, that Super Rug- the South African Super Rugby teams, so kind of like the Bulls, the Sharks, the Lions, were, are looking to move to the Pro 14 in Europe. So that's kind of got the Scottish, Irish and the Welsh teams, as well as already having two South African teams, the Cheetahs and the Southern Kings. So this article is talking about the fact that South Africa is considering moving into that competition because it aligns much better from a time zone perspective. Mm. Um, And there was a really, it's not as though it's just hearsay. They've got a quote from the Pro 14 chief executive, Martin Anayi, who says, we've always been very interested in South Africa. We like them and see them as a key part of our future. The tournament works well at the moment, but could work better if you could add teams to it. So that's one avenue, potentially. So it seems like there's some feeling, some thought that perhaps this change could go ahead. And it seems to be fitting the narrative of completely changing up the nation, the relationship of Super Rugby, of Sansa. Yes, Sansa. Yeah, yeah, interesting. That would completely well, I guess- shift Sansa. Is San, I mean, Sansa would still have some responsibility in regards to things like the rugby championship. Just because the club teams are moving to play in a dis- different competition doesn't mean the entire organisation goes away. Um, they still might oversee the rugby championship. Well, there's, but... there was talks a little while ago that if South Africa were to leave Super Rugby and move off to Europe, they, would, they could potentially move into the Six Nations, into an expanded Six Nations. Yeah, yeah, that was mooted what six weeks ago eight weeks ago or something like that um so yeah yeah. officially it's been sort of closed down and and put a stop put a pause on but if they're going to move their domestic competition over that way it looks like they may just completely leave sanzar and and move off to play in this uh, an expanded six nations and Mm. then i guess sanzar would be australia new zealand argentina and maybe japan maybe Maybe yeah. Argentina's really the lone one out there. Yeah. The, 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 you know what I lone mean. Wolf. Basically, they are so far away from everybody else. Who wants I to travel to South America for one game? Like, well, like, like Stephen Moore said in, his, um, in last week's episode of the Rugby Ruckus, when he was on, on a flight from um, Buenos Aires back to, back to Brisbane, and he said, we've jumped halfway around the world in the space of a week to play two games. He's like, what are we doing? This is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty insane. Um, but we'll have to see. I mean, there's a part of me that I kind of like the rugby championship. I don't mind playing South Africa and Argentina, but yeah. when you look at the the travel and you also have to put up with the time zone differences, it just seems like a competition that's artificial. And having ones that are at least more regional just makes sense. There's a reason why this. Six Nations has been so successful and that's because they have against teams that there are somewhat level of like national rivalry with even outside of rugby. Um, They are all with essentially within the same time zone and you can get to any of the locations of the games except for maybe Italy with actually you can even get to Italy within like two hours on a plane. So none of them are particularly challenging to reach. So you can see why these 
regional based competitions are much more effective than what we have with uh, the rugby championship. Yeah, I guess we'll just see what happens. As usual, it's an, another waiting game. There's so much change that's happening at the moment, but there's so little that we can actually do to predict what's going to be happening because it looks like there's a lot of different movements happening underneath the surface. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of exciting, but it also means that everything is just getting torn up of what we used to expect and we're comfortable with. Yeah, so I guess we just need to wait until we get some more official details and things are more set in stone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, let's move our gaze now to the global game, move away from the domestic side of things. Um, And it looks like Italy has officially announced a new coach. Yeah, it's really just a confirmation that um, Franco Smith, South African, would be replacing Conor O'Shea. Uh, Smith had already been the interim coach after O'Shea stepped down earlier. So really, it's not that surprising. And I don't think we need to talk about it anymore. Oh. (laughs) Um, Next bit of news comes around the chat that's been sort of floating around the last few weeks of a global calendar. So they've officially announced a date for a summit meeting. It's going to be on the 15th of June and it's bringing together the Six Nations um, management managers or leaders as well as the Pro 14 and the Premiership clubs, presidents. Um, to discuss With the Sansara possibility. As well. yep. The article so that we were looking at didn't particularly announce Sansar was going to be there, but Sansar has previously in the past put their support behind this. Oh, you're right, because it was saying that they're based on previous conversations yeah. between Six Nations and Sansar, there will now be this meeting. Yeah, you're totally right. Okay. So I think Sansar's like, yep, yeah, we want to do it. Go ahead. This is what we're proposing. So they've now brought, um, I don't know, is World Rugby. Yeah, World Rugby is going to be So World Rugby yeah, has yeah. brought three, two or three proposals to the European clubs and Six Nations countries to chat about on the 15th of June. Yep. And basically, for people who don't really understand, um, rugby in the Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere are played at different times of the year, and often the international windows don't overlap. And so what they're trying to do is to get a global consensus on aligning the games within each hemisphere so that there can be more opportunity for player movement but still be available for international competitions too. So if a country chose to do so, a player playing in the Japanese rugby league um, or competition, I'll show you, Japanese rugby competition, would be able to go back during an international break and play for... Wales, play for Ireland, play for England, if their eligibility requirements were okay with that. Hmm. So at the moment, um, clubs basically reign supreme over access to players most of the time. And if it's not within the mandated international breaks, then clubs, and kind of fairly rightly, they're the ones that pay the major salaries. Um, They just say, no, you can't have the player. And so what this is trying to do is just just to get some alignment and clarity over when players should be available, but also to bring connection between Northern and Southern Hemisphere so that there's also the potential for a competition like what we were looking at um, in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, like a World League sort of competition. It also makes sense that when you've got the sort of end of year, sort of November, December, end of November tests going on, that all teams are in a similar boat 
how it's been happening in the past is that the Southern Hemisphere teams are coming to the end of their rugby calendar, so they're pretty tired and they've had a full season already, whereas the Northern Hemisphere are starting a new season. So they're in their first or second tests of the year for their rugby calendar year. Um, so yep. then that kind of means that they're fresh and the Southern Hemisphere isn't as fresh and you sort of see a little bit of disparity there. Great. Well, yeah, I'm, I like that. Let's see what comes from it. It's like we were just saying, lots of positive change seems to be at least getting discussed. So let's see how that plays out over the coming weeks. Yeah. Now, next bit of news comes from the Major League Rugby in the United States. So they've officially announced a new team to join the competition next year. And they've got a really weird name. So they're going to be based <laughs> in LA and they're called the LA Guiltinis. Do you know what a Guiltini is? No, did you look it up? I do. I do know what one is. It's a it's a local cocktail. So it's oh, a really? cocktail based on the martini in Los okay. Angeles. So they've for oh, some reason okay. chosen to call their team the Guiltinis. And yep. their logo is a martini glass with sort of the oh, LA yes. logo behind it. It's really weird. And it's really weird colours too. It's pink, green, and blue. So the baby blue. Like, yeah, yeah, all of it is kind of it's all very yeah in your face but um mm -hmm. it's going to be interesting because it will have a very australian flavor so the head coach has been announced as darren coleman who is a shoot shield winning coach taking uh Waringa to the shoot shield title in 2017 and he is currently the head coach of gordon and his assistant coach is going to be former waratahs and wallabies player and current rugby sevens assistant coach stephen hoyles Okay. So very Australian flavor. Yeah. And I mean, this is, it's just really interesting to see this. It's a company owned and the company was launched in Australia who owns the Giltinis. And so it seems like it's a pretty clear attempt to try and get some level of investment in a potential expansion of rugby in the U S um, seems like a, a shrewd or sound investment move if you're looking for a long-term investment and banking on the growth of rugby in the United States, which is something that a lot of people in world rugby have been hoping for and continue to kind of aim for into the future because they're an economic powerhouse within kind of global sport and have a huge population base that maybe some players that don't cut it in the NFL may wish to come across and become like if you think of some of the massive linebackers yeah they'd be awesome in the scrum they'd be awesome in the rucks so yeah yeah but I, they have to do more than just interesting. scrum like they have to do other things so that one thing at a time one <laughs> thing at a time <laughs> uh i think yeah look you're right it's something i think is interesting we'll see how it plays out I haven't really been across this much, so I don't have anything else to really add. <laughs> How about you? Yeah, well, the MLR is definitely growing in popularity year on year. There's been some sort of interesting developments this year with the whole COVID situation in that I think two or three of their clubs actually folded and have gone bankrupt and have had to withdraw from the competition. So I think that's why the LA team has been sort of pushed into it. Um, yeah. Definitely further expansion around America is a good thing for rugby. It's an interesting competition. There's a lot of high-profile players that have been linked to play in various teams. So it's definitely growing on the rugby radar as well. But yeah. I think we need to sort of see how the financial situation of the international game being um, the USA goes before we can see how 
rugby the domestic competition goes yeah yeah okay cool let's move on um now moving to the WIU optional laws. So basically rug, world rugby have put out the suggestions for law changes that unions around the world could put in place, to try and minimize potential spread of COVID whilst playing rugby at a professional level. And look, there are, we'll just quickly uh, read a couple of quotes. The unions can apply to implement one or more of these amendments on a domestic basis according to the respective government directives relating to COVID-19. Thanks to everybody for their full commitment to the process, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Now, basically, there are 10 law trials and I personally think it would be really boring to read all 10 of them. Sure. So are there some that you thought were particularly interesting that you wanted to dis discuss? Yeah, definitely. So I think one thing we need to say is that these are trials and these are up to the domestic competitions to choose to put them into their sort of yep. plans. So at the moment, Australia and New Zealand are the only countries in the world that have announced any form of rugby to be played. There's no news whether Australia is going to adopt any of these laws. And I don't think New Zealand has announced either. But for me personally, um, number one, I thought was quite interesting in that, so we remove reset scrums where no infringement occurs. So, yep. so example, when a scrum collapses, instead of resetting the scrum, we just have a free kick to the team that put the ball in. I think that's a great idea. I would actually like to see that being introduced into rugby sort of mainstream. I think that would potentially reduce the amount of wasted time we have from scrums. If teams knew that if they weren't to just get it, go ahead and get the scrum set, it's just going to be a free kick. So interesting one. Um, yeah. Number three of the... the well, sorry, can we just pause on that for a second? Yep. Would that mean that, let's say, you are the one feeding the ball into the scrum, that you might look to deliberately try and collapse it so you get the free kick? No. So no infringement occurs. So if you've deliberately... If you've deliberately... Yeah, but, oh, you, but the, you get away with it. Like, well, yeah. The ref doesn't see you do it. Okay. Yeah, there's a fine line there, though. If you're, <laughs> you've deliberately collapsed the scrum, yeah. you've, you've done something illegal. So, but, but surely, surely, like even when we're talking with um, Harry Johnson Holmes and he's talking about some of the different techniques that you're trying to do to get under the yeah. shoulder of the opposite prop, he's like, that's illegal, but, but you do it. Um, like, you know, a lot of the times when the engage happens and then one of the props will just overextend and fall flat on his face, right? That, from what I see, and I'm no expert, but from what I see, a lot of the times that's coming because his opposite prop actually moves backwards yeah. to cause him to overextend. Now, that's, is that illegal? Is that yes. an infringement? But they're not holding but the thing the is, hit. he gets away with, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're right, he's not holding the hit. But it's never that person that gets called for it. It's always a person for losing their feet and not maintaining their balance that gets called for dropping the scrum. So my thought about, my cynical thought about this is would you see teams going to try and do some little dark art stuff to deliberately collapse, collapse the scrum on their own feed in order to get the free kick? Potentially, but at the same time, they have a higher risk of getting penalised for it. Yeah, okay. So if you're going out there to, to collapse a scrum, as a lot of teams do now, the sort of scrum tactics have changed dramatically in the last few years in that teams are using that as a weapon to gain points and to gain penalties to try and disintegrate the opposition scrum. 
Yeah. I think what this is saying that if if the scrum does collapse without either team doing something overly um, illegal and obvious, then instead mm-hmm. of just resetting it, we just have a free yeah. kick and we get the ball back in play. That would yeah. reduce the amounts of time where you see um, with four minutes left on the clock, the score the, the scores like one or two points in it and the team will just collapse twice. Yeah, yeah that's a really And at that point, we have point. A, a reset. In that case, collapse, free kick. If you've done it illegally, it goes against you. If you haven't and it's your feed, you get the free kick. So yeah. I think it would introduce more running rugby. Yeah, we cool. have to I see agree. how it plays out in a game. Okay, so that was the first one. What else interested you? Uh, number list? three, I like this. I like this one, um, in the in the context of COVID, not necessarily in a full game situation when we're not talking about mm-hmm. this, but no scrum option for a penalty or free kick. Okay, which is what? Int- yeah, what what about that is really interesting for you? Why do you think that's a good thing? Because it'll speed up the game. Yeah, okay. So I, I personally think that the the most amount of dead time we get is from scrums in rugby. If we have penalties and you remove the chance to have a scrum, you have a free kick or um, like a penalty kick or a short arm free kick. You're running it or you're kicking for a line out. So you've got yep. those two things. It reduces the amount of time that's wasted in a scrum. So would scrums then only be happening for knock-ons, drop-ons? Yep. Knock-ons or okay. um, when the, yeah, when the, the ball's killed. Yep. Okay, cool. Referee or something like that, yeah. And then your third uh, one was? Next one was number four, goal line dropout when an attacker is held up in goal or knocks on in goal. Okay. Because at the moment, it is a scrum. So they're yep. just sort of introducing ways to get around having a scrum because they're trying to reduce the amount of people in um, in a in the in close situation yeah. of the scrum. And the last one yep. is number nine, no one can join a mall if not in at the start. Yep. I think yeah, that, might so that, kind of stops. To, um, that might be interesting to see how that works. That could potentially carry on into the, the full game. Yeah, there's a part of me that hates um, when all the backs come flooding into a mall um, because it essentially becomes impossible to defend against. And it you just bring all really, your backs in. Yeah, but then if you do that, then the person with the ball just peels off and jumps over. And I just, I just personally think you, you actually lose a contest for the ball when that happens. It's essentially becoming a legalised form of obstruction when you have that many people denying a realistic contest for the ball. Um, so if you do limit how many people can join a mall if they're not there, so basically say if you are not there when the mall is set, then you can't join then i think that at least makes it even so it's just a forward pack against the forward pack yeah i mean there's two sides to this one in that a mall is such a unique thing to rugby there's no other games that really have anything that sort of resembles a mall so it's such a unique thing that we kind of want to keep it in the game but at the same time it's such a complicated part of the game where you don't no one really knows how a mall is going to end whether it's yeah. going to be in favour of the defending or the attacking team. And a lot of the time, a penalty will be awarded and you sit there going, what? Why? For? Why? Yeah. But that guy's come around the side. Like, he could have been penalised. There's like five or six things that could be penalised at any given more. So, yeah. yeah. I guess and the other thing too with that is it'll be interesting to see if the hooker is allowed to join them all either. Because what you see now is the hooker will throw the ball into a line-out the line-out jumper will bring it down and the hooker will come in and join the back of the mall and take the ball. What happens to a player who gets, um, if they kind of lose their bind, have to break off, are they not allowed to rejoin at the back like they normally would? 
I would, I would, yeah, exactly. It just says, um, it just has some irrational around it. So line-out malls, 60% of line-out malls have all eight fours involved, capping the number who join caps to proximity. So it doesn't actually say anything further than yeah. that. Interesting. There must be more details to it. Um, mate, the, the, there are a few that I identified. One was the bringing in of this weird orange card. So basically it's trying to reinforce the high tackle sanction framework. So when there's a high tackle, the referee has particular a framework or steps that they go through to determine whether or not it is a high, card, high tackle. And if so, whether it meets penalty, yellow card or red card thresholds, okay? Yep. And basically what this is saying is that they want to introduce an orange card for red high card tackle offenses. So if they think using the regular framework, it meets the red card threshold, the player is given an orange card. They then have to leave the field. The TMO, citing people, whatever, are reviewing that incident then and there, kind of on a sideline whilst the game is continuing. If they agree that it, yes, it did meet the red card threshold, then that player stays off as per normal. There's no yeah. issue there. But if they think, actually, no, we have a camera angle that the referee didn't have access to, uh, we just think the ref was playing wrong, um, <laughs> then and it only meets a yellow card or penalty thresholds, then the player returns after 15 minutes. And the overall rationale is to try and just continue to reduce the tackle height. So there's more risk in upright tackles because people kind of grapple more, but if you're just tapping around the legs, then there's less risk of transmission, supposedly. Yeah, they're talking um, about the transmission as well. So I guess they're saying that yeah. if you're going high, you have the chance of contacting head or face on face. Yeah. Body fluid, yeah. that kind of thing. And look, in a way I get it, but all this is doing, it's an introduction of another confusing law into a game that is already filled with confusing laws and is very, very hard to interpret. So I just think that's a bit ridiculous. And like upright tackles to tackles around the legs aren't going to fundamentally change the transmission risk in my mind when you have people still engaging in rucks and malls and yeah, line exactly. and regular tackling. So whatever. I don't yeah, I mean, I think I can see what they're trying to get at here. Mm. If they're looking at this purely from a COVID situation, this is not the area that needs to be of most worry. It's the, yep. like you're playing a contact sport, the scrum is going to, and the, and the, the scrum and the breakdown is where transmission is going to happen. Not necessarily one-on-one -on -one tackles that are above yep. the shoulder, all that sort of thing. I do, I do think this makes it very confusing and the, the way they've gone about this and describing it just sounds way too complicated. But mm. I do think it is a step in the right direction. So I don't necessarily think we need to implement a whole new card because at the moment, that's four different colored cards that we have floating around in rugby. But a yellow card, you've got a red card. If you're refereeing a sort of Australian um, juniors game, we've got blue cards which are for concussions. Oh, blue cards. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so if you, if you as a referee witness someone gets knocked out, you hold up a blue card and they have to go through a concussion protocol in a juniors game. Yep, okay. And then you've now got an orange card. Four cards, so confusing. I just think it's way too much. Stuff that, stuff that. I do like the idea of bringing in a review into a red card, but I think yeah, that yeah, can okay. be brought in anyway. So yeah. player gets shown a red, he goes off, Timo looks at it. He's got 10 minutes to decide whether he can come back or not. I don't necessarily yep. think the additional five minutes is warranted here. 
I guess what mm. they're trying to do is create an incentive not to hit players hard, high, yep. even more yep. than normal. Um, yep. So, yeah, I can see why they're doing that. But 10 minutes, ref, uh, Timo looks at it. If he thinks, yeah, this is just a yellow card, comes back on. No, it's a red card. I agree with it. Stays off. Yep. Well, mate, my, my um, second one I thought was one that could actually continue beyond, uh, actually the next two, I think both could continue beyond COVID times, which is number seven in rucks. The use it duration time is going to be dropped from five down to three seconds. So that's basically... You know when the scrum half is getting the forwards to caterpillar off the back of a ruck and then takes like four or five steps back and then kind of wiggles their butt a bit and then just hangs around, checks the temperature, looks at, waves at somebody in the crowd and Chases then does watch. a rocks kick. Yeah, something like that. Um, and the ref will uh, only at the end say use it. Well, actually, they'll say that and as soon as it's said, you don't have five seconds from when it's called to get rid of it. It's three seconds. So it's just reducing the time that the player has when the ref is called to use it. I wish there was something there that said they will say use it earlier as well, but uh, it's something. It's a step in the right direction. Yeah, I mean, there's mind. not really a, a law around when you say it. We're sort of advised as referees to within a sort of a five second time frame as well. So if the ball's there and available, you kind of, yep. as a referee, when you see the ball sitting there and ready, you call use it because you want to yep. keep the ball in play. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then the last one was only one forward movement and a mole. So I think you get two opportunities. And on the second one, once that gets stopped, you then have to, if they then call use it again. And by at least within a mall having only that one movement forward, it therefore means that it's speeding up the game. The rationale is that it's reducing close proximity of forwards being close to each other in a mall. Uh, but I just think the benefit actually would result in just a bit of a faster speed of the game plus yeah. malls really annoy me and I don't like them. So Yeah, as you yeah. said before, happy, no one knows what's going to happen. Power. No one knows yep. what happens inside a mall, how it's going to, what the outcome's going to be. So yeah, I agree with that as well. Once the you've had your mall, you've set, you've moved forward, yep. you've stopped. The defense has actually done something well to stop your momentum. They should be rewarded Why do you for have that. the right? Yeah, why do you have the exactly. right to just kind of wheel it and then basically have that realistically just peel off and go in another direction exactly yeah, yeah. but um, i mean sort of that's technically illegal too but anyway yeah but it happens like it technically does. it's illegal but you see it and you're like i don't understand why that one's a truck and trailer and oh, why that one's not it's so yeah it there's so many sense. gray areas around the mall so yeah definitely a good thing <laughs> anyway anyway so if you want to have a look at them go to the rugby australia website and check that out um, there I think yeah, we might put more. something up on our socials around it and just get some discussion going. See what people yep. think, what people yep. like, what people would like to see in in um in the new domestic comps and sort of rugby going forward. So yeah, we'll put that up and let us know what you think. Sounds awesome. Well, mate, I think that's it for the news. Yeah. Um, well done. Covered all of it, and I'm sure there will be more juicy stuff for us to, oh, and spicy stuff for us to look at next week. Can't forget the spice. <laughs> Can't forget the spice. All right, let's move on. We move now to the main event of this pod and we're looking at the Brumbies versus the British and Irish Lions. So basically to give you a bit of the context, it is 2013 and the British and Irish Lions. This is the Tuesday night in a cold and 
wet Canberra before the British and Irish Lions go up to play the Wallabies in Brisbane on the Saturday night. And so this is pretty common. Well, it is very common in the British and Irish Lions tours where they'll play a whole bunch of warm-up games against some of the provincial sides at whatever country they are going to. And so they played teams like the Rebels and the Waratahs already and spanked them. And so really the expectation was for another British and Irish Lion win. Um, the there had not been an Australian provincial team beating the British and Irish Lions for 42 years. So when you take a look through the lineup of the um, of the Brumbies team, there are some really significant players who are not involved. And you look at the squad as it turns out from 1 to 15, and there's a huge lack of international experience. Did you know, Mitch, at this point, that Scott Fardy did not have a cap for the Wallabies? Really? I did not know that. Yep. And so he was immense in this game and later became basically the mainstay of the Australian kind of back three. He was the glue that held together the pooper combination. (laughs) And it was his, he had not in 2013 or June of 2013 yet had a call up to the Wallabies. So it was, it was kind of fun to have this blaster in the past of like a young Matty Tamur at number 10. Um, to have Tavita Kurundrani was only 22 and Henry Spate was something like 20. And Jesse Mogg at 15. He, I forgot how good he was. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that was, was one so of the things that I, I took away from watching this game again, first of all, was looking yeah. at the lineup for the Brumbies. Was, this is actually a really good side. Yeah. If you, so at the time, it probably looked like their kind of B-grade side, but with the years that have gone by now, there's some heavy hitters in this, in, yep. in this, uh, this team. So I guess we're not really surprised when you look back on it that they did so well. Exactly. I think but at the time, they lacked experience. But what we now know is that they actually were a really high-quality team Yeah. because they obviously had potential and they showed that in their later games. But if you look at um, the teams, so Christian Liliafano would have been starting for the Brumbies. Yeah. You would have had Ben Moen, I'm pretty sure, was down at the Brumbies at that point. Ben yeah. Alexander, Stephen Moore. Uh, who else? Who else? Who else? Who else? Pat McCabe as well. Um, was he Waratahs or was he Brumbies? Um, Pat McCabe. Pat McCabe. Waratahs. Regardless. Uh, Brumbies. Brumbies, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I thought he was Brumbies. Yeah. So you just have around four or five first team players that are playing for the Wallabies who aren't in this team for the Brumbies. So why don't we quickly run through the lineup? of the Brumbies, just from 1 to 15. I'll just quickly say the names and we'll move on. Yep. So you've got Scotty Seo, and I'll go from 1 to 8. Scott Seo, uh, Saliva, Saliva, Ruan Smith, Leon Power, Sam Carter, Scott Fardy, Colby Fainga, and then Peter Kimlin, who was inspirational and a captain at number 8. Then Ian Pryor, Matt Tamua, 9-10, Clyde Rathbone, and Henry Spate on the wings at 11-14. Andrew Smith, who I had no idea who he yeah, was. Yeah, I couldn't remember who he was when I watched this. I, I saw Smith on the back of the jersey, and I'm like, George Smith is playing 12? Like, what? Well, George Smith was no in idea. the Wallabies at that time. <laughs> I just had an absolutely no idea. Um, Tavita Kurandrani at 13 and Jesse Mogg at 15. So you've got some really good quality players here and there. But if you look at the tight five, like Scotty Seo is great. Ruan Smith at that point, like he's a 
he's a serviceable super player now, but at that time he was still very raw. Well, this was his um, debut. Yeah, actually, that's, that shows how. So this was his first time <laughs> playing for the Brumbies in a Lions yeah. test. I mean, how and good I'm pretty is that? Sure his brother JP, so his brother JP Smith was on the bench, and yeah. that he didn't get subbed on because he was so raw that they didn't want to bring in someone who was uncapped against the replacement front row that was brought on in like the 55th minute and started to pound the Brumbies. They didn't want yeah. to replace the front row. So oh, like there was heaps to go with there. And then on the bench, I'll, I won't go through the bench, but that's just one to 15. Um, now, what were some of your takeaways from this game? I don't think we'll go through kind of start to finish of major points throughout the game, but what was some of the things that you really noticed whilst watching this? Okay, so first of all, I mean, one point that came to me when I was watching this was I just remembered how good a Lions series was. I yeah. kind of forgot that they're just so awesome and they just get you so pumped um, yeah. how great they are to watch all of the super teams play the, the Lions and then the internationals as well. It's just so good. But um, this Lions team, I, I guess it's kind of hard coming in and watching this as a one-off and not sort of watching the previous games to know what was happening yeah. with the side. But it just yeah. did, it seemed like they picked an inexperienced forward pack or mm-hmm. maybe not inexperienced because there's some big names there. But just um, so if we run through who was named as the starting forward pack, it was um, Ryan Grant at one, Rory Best at two, Matt Stevens at three, Richie Gray at four, Ian Evans at five, Sean O'Brien at six, Justin Tuparik at seven and Talupe Falatau at number eight. So, I mean, there's some fairly big names in, in that forward pack, but they that just... row is massive. They didn't yeah. gel. Not at all. They were getting sort of monstered and dominated at every f- different aspect of the game by the Brumbies. Their line-out, they didn't win a line-out oh, so the whole bad. first half. I don't think they won a line-out, yeah. their throw or against the throw, until the sort of 60th minute. The at one point, um, at one point, it was so the hooker is Rory Best, okay, yeah. and he is Irish the most captain. capped. He's the Irish captain, the most capped uh, Irish hooker of all time. Inspirational, one of the most famous hookers in rugby history, and he missed four lineout throws. For he got called for four, four throws not being straight in a row, mm. and of like that's not even that. That's not even down to not playing with your team enough and getting basics. the combinations right. And get, that's just, you literally aren't throwing the ball straight. And it just seemed like they were full of these errors that kept impacting their game and there was no continuity. Because you're right, the, the Brumbies stole the ball many, many times throughout the game off lineouts, which just means the Lions weren't getting any continuity in attack. They were always getting turned around. Uh, which meant the forwards are always having to run back and try and recover the ground that had been lost. Yeah. And then you come to the breakdown. The Brumbies were so intent on the ball that they turned, yeah. they won the breakdown so many times. I don't yeah. know what the actual, I don't, do you have numbers or statistics for this game? Keep talking. <laughs> I don't know what the, um, actually, I've, I think I've got it here, but I don't know what the, the overall numbers say, but it seemed like the Brumbies won nearly every second or third breakdown, they would have a turnover. Particularly in that first half. I can tell you that the Lions won 61% of their line out, which is just horrific. Um, And 
I'm now trying to see if I can find the turnovers. Um, actually, you know what? The Brumbies con conceded more turnovers than the Lions, but that is not necessarily reflective of um, ruck turnovers. It could be knock-ons as well that are counting towards that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah anyway. I'll see what like, I can find as we keep going. It really just seemed like this, this Brumby side was very well coached by Jake White. They yeah. had a hunger to win and they were doing things like they had the, the Lions completely uh, in disarray. They just didn't know what, what to do because their basics were just failing them. Yep. Yep. And uh, look, I think part of it comes down to they had a whole bunch of changes come into play right before the game. So if you look at the Lions team, they had which players. So they had Shane Williams, who is like this inspirational uh, Welsh winger, yeah. one of the one of the best Welsh players of all time. He gets parachuted into the team at the last minute to try. I can't remember the exact reasons why, but he's 36 at the time. He came playing. over from Japan to play in it as yeah. well. <laughs> this so was his it must have been because he's in the area. This was his third Lions tour and his 10th test or Lions, I guess you call it a test. I guess all of them are tests. But his 10th yeah. game for the Lions. That's huge. It's, it's pretty incredible. So you had Simon Zebo who is one of the placement backs. So, um, Winger. And, yeah, you also has, so you had Simon Zebo, you had Brad Barrett, Billy Twelve Trees, and, um, and, and Shane Williams. All of them were flown in at the last minute as replacements for injuries or um, people who couldn't play. And, like, four of those were parachuted into the starting team. So it makes a lot of sense that there was this really disjointed play from the Lions that resulted in the Brumbies being able to capitalise and put this defensive pressure on. Because a lot of the criticism throughout the game was labelled at, well, at Stuart Hogg, who is now one of the best 15s in world rugby yep. for playing for Scotland. He's a Scottish captain. Um, and at the time was playing number 10. And he just did not have a particularly strong game. A few of his passes didn't make the, um, went behind the player. He was getting really, really bad service from Ben Youngs at scrum half. And when he was trying to bring his 12 and 13, so 12 trees and Barrett into the game, he would often pass the, the 12 trees would be running too hard onto the ball before the ball was ready. And so would have to check his run to receive the ball and then would just get dominating contact because he wasn't running at full pace. And just those small little things are indicative of a team that hasn't trained enough together. I think I read that they only had one game, one, one training session with the full team prior to this game being played. Well, what's interesting as well is this was the sixth game of the series. So of yep. the tour. So the yep. Lions had played some, some pretty good tests prior to this. They played the Barbarians um, and they played most of the Super Rugby side. So they had only the Melbourne Rebels to play the following week. And then that was kind yep. of it. And then the Wallabies. So you wouldn't say that this was an inexperienced team in that they hadn't been together for a while because they'd had the weeks prior to the tour and then the six games before. They played the Barbarians back in England before they left as well. So they had yep. the time together. You would have thought that those combinations would have gelled. A lot of the players that you just yeah. mentioned that they brought across as well were replacements. They weren't yep. in the starting teams, apart from 12 trees, 
I think the rest were pretty established Lions squad members. Uh, Brad Barrett wasn't. He was parachuted in as well, and he was starting at 13. Um, but, yeah, with the rest of them. Yeah, basically, I think what we're just seeing is a combination of some inexperience and lack of time from some of the players contributing to a, a lack of cohesion with how they're playing, but also the defensive intensity of the Brumbies forcing mistakes. And I think it's a combination of the two that is really the factor there. The, the difference when the bench rolled out from about oh, 55 minutes on was... was just, from that point on, it was British and Irish Lions for the entire time. That's right. Definitely. So the bench sort of came on at the 60-minute mark. They basically replaced a half of their front row. And then a five yep. minutes later, they replaced, they brought on their big, sort of big players in the backs. So... Yep. From that point on, I think the score would have been, at that point, 14... It was 15-6. 15-6, okay. Minutes. Yep. Okay, cool. Someone took notes. Good. Um, <laughs> yes. But it was definitely... The, the game completely switched at that point and it became all lines dominated. So Owen Farrell completely took charge at 10. Um, mm. Who came on? Damn it. Who came on at 9? Connor Murray. Connor, Connor Murray. Murray. Yeah, so Connor Murray and, and Owen Farrell came on and they just clicked. They did so well and they, they just had yeah. this go-forward ball from that point yeah. on. But in saying that, and the Brumbies did ridiculously well to, to hold on to their lead. Yeah, definitely. And there were a couple of really clutch moments where they got a couple of turnovers and a few of them I thought they were really lucky to get. Yeah. Um, there was a turnover on the 67th minute. The Lions have... They're sitting at 15-9 after another feral penalty a few minutes earlier. And the Brumbies are just holding on for dear life. And I can't remember, I think it was Tamua actually gets a turnover. Yes. But yes. He, he was almost definitely off his feet and not supporting his He was on his knees. Um, yeah. <laughs> and even the commentators but, are like, oh, I was standing about five metres from that. And Tamua was definitely on his knees. But the referee was right there. So he saw something so, else. So we'll take it. Um yeah, and there were a few moments where the, the Brumbies got really lucky, but in some ways they created their own luck by not giving up yes. and just continuing to commit and really make sure that... Like, Connor Murray did a couple of really nice breaks when he came on where he kind of ran across the line then jinked in and made his way through just a weak outside shoulder of a forward trying to track across. But the cover defence was good enough to chase with it and to take him down before actually the full clean break happened. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the Brumbies, like they hung in really well and they were continuing mm. to, to get momentum in the areas of the game where they were dominant. So they were really dominant at the breakdown and they were really dominant in the scrum. So even in the last sort of five minutes, there was a, there was a number of scrums and they still monstered the Lions pack, even though... And I think, I, I don't know what the exact lineup was for the test that weekend, but the forwards that came on were, would have been playing in that Lions, um, that Lions test against the Wallabies that weekend. It was a, it was a fairly decent front row. And they, they didn't halt, so they kept going forward. I think it was the second or third last minute of the game. There was a, a scrum and the, the Brumbies drove the Lions back about four or five metres. Yeah, that was when they first had that um, the new front row come on. Yeah. They just dominated the Brumbies and walked straight through them. 
I was looking at the uh, England, sorry, not the England, the uh, the Lions lineup for the test match on the following Saturday. And basically everybody that came on in the second half and made the massive difference. So you're looking at uh, Hibbard, Corbusiero and Cole as the front yeah. row. Um, Corbusiero started at Loosehead and Hibbard and Cole were on the bench and came yeah. on around the 50 minute. Yeah. Mark. So they were they were within the first they were first team players that yeah. were brought on to try and rescue the game and came very, very close to doing so. They did come very close. And I think uh if you look back in the first half, there were some kicks that the Lions left or missed that definitely came back to haunt them. But in saying that, the Brumbies missed a few kicks as well in the first half that could have pushed their lead even yeah. further ahead. Yeah, Mog missed one from really far away and then Ian Pry missed one as well, I think came off the post. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think there were three kicks that came off the post. Um, there was in yeah. the game, which was just just weird. That very rarely happens, and then to happen three times in one game was, I don't know, freak. But that's okay. Um, one of the things I really enjoyed watching from this was Jesse Mog. Now we yeah. mentioned him a little bit earlier, but I wonder if he's one of the unluckiest players in Australian rugby to be so, so very good, but have Israel Folau ahead of you. Yeah. And that must be the reason why he hardly got any games for Australia, because he was not a winger, but he was a fantastic fullback. His strength in the air, the power on his kicks were incredible. And he was lightning quick as well. I think I forget how quick he actually was until you watch this game. Yeah, he was really good. And he his skills just in general around the park were phenomenal. Yep. Did you um see his little banana kick in the like, second last minute of the game? Yeah. Oh, it was so good. So f- for those of you who haven't watched it, basically, you're in the 70, 79th minute of the game. And the British and Irish Lions are on the attack. They put a nice little grubber, or it's always ball something, through. And Mog gets it under pressure, snaps off this banana kick and gets the angle on it. So it perfectly curls, bounces once, goes out about 35, 40 metres down the field from where he was, just clearing the Brumbies line and completely diffusing that attack. And it was just this snap instinct kick that came off perfectly, but just showed the skills that he had. Not only can he kick it like 60, 70 metres downfield, out of hand, but he can also do these deft little kicks as well to get territory. So yeah, he was he was awesome to watch. Yeah, it really does show that I think we missed we definitely miss Australia having him as a Wallabies player. But mm. um, interesting when you look at the the team. So that that weekend, the first test was Israel Folau's debut for the Wallabies, and really? he was playing fourteen, and Kurtley Beal was playing Kurtley Beal. Oh wow. So, okay. you know, but Curtly Bill as well, if you go back and watch the highlights of that game, Curtly Bill was in form. Yeah, okay. Curtly Bill was in good form this, that series. And we, mm-hmm. we potentially could have won the series had Curtly Bill not... Slipped in the over. first game when kicking penalty to win the game. Yep. Yeah. And he missed That's a right. kick before that. He had two penalties to win the game in the last few minutes of the game and missed them both. Yeah. I remember that one. But was Jesse Mould um, might have got them. Oh, Jesse Mogg might have. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I mean, you can go back and think of, oh, if only this player was in. But yeah. realistically, it was fun just to watch a player 
just play without any fear or any particular concerns about um, what was going to be happening to him. Now, one thing I sort of caught myself thinking when I was watching the game was Tavita Kuandrani. So yeah. he scored the first try for the for the Brumbies and he was playing at 13, uh, which he still plays at. But I thought mm-hmm. that the way that he approached the game was different to how he plays now. I don't know if that was because he was younger and that he was coached differently by Jake White, but he seemed more skillful in this game than he kind of has seemed in the last few years. I don't know if that's was, because... Yeah. So if you watch the first try that he scores, and I think it is the only try of the he game. He palms off Christian Wade in a he face palms off, and then runs Yeah, through. he palms off, but he also steps a player mm. and then commits the tackler and then still makes it over the line. Yep. Whereas nowadays, I think Tavita Kuandrani is playing um, a similar game to Samu Karevi in that he's being that big abrasive ball runner where he'll rather take on the line at speed and just run straight and hard. He doesn't yep. sort of have that depth and that ability to, to step and, and fend and get around players. Yeah, in some way, I'd see him almost more like a Jamie Roberts player, so the Welsh outside um, yep. outside centre, who he was a crash ball specialist. Uh, I think what Samu Karevi's point of difference was is his offload game, particularly. So, yeah, he obviously was a strong player. Well, no, he was he he was developing it in his final season and was actually his getting pretty stats, good at it. His stats for the twenty nineteen season, he had like four offloads to his outside. Are you serious? And yeah. what am I even thinking? So you know, that, was that, of, that was Are one of that was one of the big, to me with this. No, that was one of the biggest um, the sort of criticisms of having Samu Grevy in the Wallaby squad for the World Cup was that he doesn't feed his outside man, and that he takes uh... on he took on the line so much and that yep. when you look at the stats from the reds that season that samu Krevi had like oh, i don't even remember the number but he had like averaging 12 runs a game or something but his outside man was averaging like four because he just wasn't feeding him did you do you follow samu Krevi on instagram i think so so i think we might have did we mention this last week samu Krevi's, uh isolation stay in a hotel for two weeks no he didn't okay so basically samu karevi came back from japan because he'd been playing over there i think it might have been with his cousin he um came back in and he had to go through the mandatory two-week isolation in a hotel and so he his instagram story for the last like fortnight prior to getting out and going home um was him just doing workout after workout at home. <laughs> and he had to keep up having run a certain amount of distance like three k's a day or something like that so they measured out the distance from the door of the hotel room to the opposite wall being something like eight meters and then did the maths of how many times they had to run back and forth to make the required thing in the room they had to yeah in their rooms because they had to keep their cardio going and so he's basically just has like story after story of just him or his cousin just running back and forth or they um would they wanted to get some bench going so they used the bed the hotel room bed and then would put their heavy luggage bags on top of the bed to add more weight to it so one of them would be on the ground lying on the ground doing the 
uh, push motion whilst the other person is standing with their feet on either side of the guy's chest, like directly above him, holding on to the suitcase to make sure it doesn't fall off onto the person's head on the ground. It's bloody brilliant. So that's crazy. I'm, I have, don't follow him. I have just started oh, following him. Mate, you, you've got that. to get involved. It's fantastic. Um, unfortunately, because it was on his story, I don't think you can go back and watch it. Yeah. But it, it was a lot of fun to be watching at the time. They played a lot of Call of Duty as well. So there was a bit of, ex, there was a lot of exercise with a bit of games as well. And surely they could have when, gone down to the gym. They don't no, have access no, you're, to the gym. You're trapped in your room. But they can't go out of but the room. You cannot leave your room. Far out. At all. Wow. Is, uh, the requirements, yeah. Okay. So they, um, when, when he and his, I think, I think it's his cousin, I'll just say it is. When he yeah, and his, his cousin, cousin left, oh, he yeah. put a post up um, saying, thanks for the time, brother. Couldn't have best thing to be able to do with you or you were the best person to do this with and I never want to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know if you so, caught it this week, but Samu Karevi was a, um, a guest on the Rugby Nations. No, I want to go yeah. back and listen to it. Yeah, Was it good? It's, it's good. It only goes about 25 minutes, so it's pretty short and sharp. But interestingly, they were, they were talking about um, Samu Karebi potentially playing rugby in Australia this year. So he doesn't have because, to, be, he doesn't have to yeah. be back in Japan until September. And they don't start their yep. season until January. So they'll go back in September, October and do some pre-season stuff and then start up again in January. But he's hoping to play... For to the play well... Potentially, but he was talking more about just playing some sort of club footy in Brisbane. Oh yeah, okay. But that sort of opens the door as well. If we were talking last week about having an invitational Anzac side, oh yeah, he'd be available. Ooh, yeah, yeah, and we wouldn't have to use one of our international spots for him. Yeah, <laughs> how good would that be? <laughs> um, yeah, cool. Okay. Well, are there any final points you want to make about the Brumbies Lions game? I just think the Brumbies did so well to get out to such a lead. Uh, yep. One note I did notice while well, I learnt from watching the game was that in the first half, if the Brumbies kept the British Nash Lions scoreless, it would be the first time in 80 years that had happened. Oh, wow. In the first half. But unfortunately, right on sort of the last yep. play of the, get- yep. of the half, they got a penalty and they kicked it. So if they had kept them scoreless for that first half it would have been the first time in 80 years that the British and Irish Lions had not scored a point in the first half of a game that's a high quality fact awesome you know what's going to happen though in some alternate dimension we're going to be at a pub trivia and you know how you get to the end of the night and they have those like three questions that if you get all of them correct you get a thousand dollar jackpot or something one of them is going to be in the 2013 British and Irish Lions game, what was the score in the 39th minute of the game? Or something like yeah. that. What was the score? Uh, how many years had it been since the British and Irish Lions have been kept scoreless in the first half of the game? And you're just going to be like, give me my thousand dollars now. <laughs> I hope I hope that happens. I would gladly Mate, take that. I like doing the pub trivia because I feel like I know enough about sport and then I only realise I know a lot about one niche sport <laughs> and very little about anything else. So, yeah. Oh, mate. Um, I personally just really, really enjoyed seeing Colby Feinger play as well. Yeah, that was I the other thing. He was so good. good he was. Yeah. He was 
basically just a lightweight rock monkey and would always be going in there for the turnovers and somehow would just ride that initial hit and not get blown away in the clear out and just get the turnover. He did really, really well. And I think he was a loss to Australian rugby when he moved overseas. He, why did he not go any further? Is David Pocock. Was David Pocock playing in that series? I'm just looking at the, the team list. Uh, uh, We've got Michael Where Hooper at seven. It'd be Hooper at seven, yeah. So, I mean, he's behind Hooper, and Hooper was incredible. Well, from what, is it, pretty what it says here, the, oh, this is for the first test, I think. Oh, this is the 30-man squad. So, the flankers were Dave Dennis, Liam Gill, Michael Hooper, Peter Kimlin, Ben McCowman, and George Smith. So, Pocock wasn't playing. Mm-hmm. wonder if he was injured. Surely, was that when he had his sabbatical? Like earlier sabbatical? I'm pretty sure he took another one. I'm not sure. Not his official one. I'm not one. sure. Because he wrote a book. Yeah, Colby Fang is still playing at the moment. So he's over at Connick, which is in Ireland. Um, so he's part of the Pro 14. Because he's, a, he's, a, different, he's a different sort of flanker um, than Hooper or Pocock. He's a lot yeah. taller. Yep. He looks more like a second rower and that he's a lot bigger. But he does have that presence over the ball. So, yeah, it was inter- it's, it's interesting that he didn't go any further. I guess mm-hmm. he's Imagine being a part of that Fanger family, though, having Anthony oh. Sire as well. And they were all... I mean, there's another brother, Vili There's Fanger. a fourth one as well, isn't it? Yeah, I'm looking it up. Uh, he plays in Brisbane Premier Rugby. And he's yeah. now a head coach of the University of Queensland women's 15 team. Good so, that entire family. family, that's incredible. Four, like, profes- professional... Yeah, professional rugby players. Oh, he played for Tonga as well. Oh, so he's got a cap as well. Okay, awesome. Three yeah, nice. three caps for Tonga. That's so good. What a legend. What a legend. Well, mate, I think we're kind of petering out here. Should we yeah. just kind of wrap up our chat? Anything final you want to throw in? No, I think that's, um, I think that's everything. I think we've covered it. So... Hopefully next week we'll be able to bring everybody a little bit more news about developments in Australia. Actually, I've got one more thing to say. Applies to this. This just reminds me again how good a Lions series is. And I really, really hope that the Lions series goes ahead next year to South Africa because that would be awesome. Especially with them being the The world champions. World champions. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be huge. Especially with very little international rugby likely to happen this year. It means that the Lions would basically be one of the first and kind of biggest series to take place. So that would it's be huge. All, it's already a massive series in rugby, but this would mm. be a massive series in world sport as well. So yeah. it would be so good. Yeah. But there That's is talks cool. that it's going to be postponed for a year. Lame. We'll see what happens. Lame. We'll see. We'll see. All right, mate. Should we finish this chat there? Sounds good. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. We're going to leave it there for this week. Uh, So, yeah, another good week of rugby chats. And we'll be back hopefully next week with some more things to talk about in regards to rugby. Not even hopefully, mate. We will be back. We will be back. Okay, we We will will. be back. We will. No (laughs) denial. Got to keep it regular. We had one week off and I felt intensely guilty about it. I can't have another week of burning guilt. So, uh, basically, if you want to get involved, we're going to be putting some posts out on Instagram, hashtag 
agpeak underscore drive underscore rugby and also at our peak and drive rugby podcast facebook group so hit us up get involved commentate uh, we'd love to hear your opinions and thoughts about everything that we put out there we just basically love to chat and be a part of a community so thanks for yeah. people who are already getting involved Yes, we've got one more week and then we get back into the rugby action with the New Zealand domestic comp. So two weeks to go, we'll have new, exciting rugby to talk about. How awesome. How good. Cannot wait. How good. It'll be so good. Well, thank you so much for tonight, Mitch. It's been a pleasure. And I think we'll call it night. Awesome. Have a good week, everyone. We'll catch you next week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. You can follow us on social media at the following outlets. Follow our Facebook page at Pick and Drive Rugby Podcast. Send us a tweet at at pick underscore drive rugby. Follow our Instagram at pick underscore drive underscore rugby. Or send us an email at pickanddriverugby at gmail.com. We'd love to hear any questions or feedback you may have, so get in touch. Thanks again for listening and we'll catch you next week.